there's a lot that can happen between one Sunday to the next. And um, I know that for a number of you, uh, between Sundays, there's a lot of trial, a lot of suffering, brokenheartedness, uh, hard times. I never want you to suffer in silent in silence. Always want to be there for you. The Lord's always there for you. He never sleeps and never slumbers. Your elders sleep, uh, but the Lord never does. Um, but certainly want to be there for you and treasure you. And as I get to stand in this pulpit from Sunday to Sunday and look out over you, you are precious to the Lord and very precious to me. And uh, love and appreciate you guys a lot. Um, and so never, never suffer. Uh, in silence uh, love to be there for you um, yeah we come again now to the gospel of mark we find ourselves this morning in the latter part of a long chapter verses 43 to 52 murray am i able to turn that speaker around Am I able to, uh, this doesn't normal. am I able to just turn them around or something? It's, they're all, as I speak, it is all flooding at me. Um, but anyway, I'll try and get on with it. Do all things without complaining, even preaching. Um, let's, let's read this passage together. We, we find ourselves in Mark chapter 14. If you're visiting with us, we're working our way verse by verse through the gospel of Mark. We're so love. we're so... Thankful that you're here. And so let's read verse 43 of Mark 14 together. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs, who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away. Under guard. Thank you, brother. After coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me, as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and acknowledge your goodness. We thank you for your kindness. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would uh, bless us in this hour. Give us by your grace an opportunity to lay aside uh, the worries of the week and now wonder at you and who you are. And so, Lord, we Come desperate. We come so very needy. We 
believe in the Holy Spirit of God and pray that he would teach us truth and guide us and illuminate us and that we would be changed all the more. Help us to be those that are ever growing in grace, in the graces of the Spirit as we see them in the fruit of the Spirit and never growing in the knowledge of God. And so we give you great thanks, our Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord answered our prayers and that fixed it straight away. (laughs) Right there, it's fixed now. Praise the Lord. There have been many, many horrible betrayals uh, in human history. Many of which were so horrific that they changed the course of history. Examples like double agents who, while serving one country, were actually spying on uh, another. To stabbings in the back, such as when Brutus the Younger, he shook uh, the hand, he shook Julius Caesar's hand with his right hand and then stabbed him in the back with his left hand and thus assassinated the Roman dictator. Betrayal. Betrayal, it's a word filled with uh, emotional uh, attachment and a word that has the following synonyms. Duplicity, infidelity, unfaithfulness, treachery, treason. Anyone who knows much about the Christian faith, believer and unbeliever alike, knows the name Judas, who committed this ultimate betrayal. For to whom what made it ultimate was to whom it was committed against. It was against the sinless, holy Son of God. And this week, out of curiosity, I looked up what a children's Sunday school lesson on Judas might look like. The first one I found had the following lesson instructions. Quote, Divide the children into two groups and assign one group the task of finding all the details about Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Assign the second group the task of identifying the ways Jesus responded to Judas prior to his arrest and at his arrest. End quote. And I thought, you know what? That is such a good and simple way to observe what goes on here. What are the details of Judas' betrayal? And what did Jesus respond or how did Jesus respond to this betrayal and so that's what we're going to endeavor to do except I've broken down this account in Mark 14 43 to 52 I've broken it down into four headings four details of the betrayal in order that we might grasp the enormity of what is happening and so as we begin to dig down into the text, the first detail of this betrayal that I want you to see is, number one, an egregious disloyalty. An egregious disloyalty. Egregious, obviously, being the word for severe, uh, horrendous. In verses 43 to 46. And consider the context back with me for a moment. This is the final night of Jesus' earthly ministry. Tomorrow he will be crucified. Tonight they had observed the Passover. Judas fled 
after being filled with Satan and identified by Jesus as the one who would betray him. The entire Gethsemane scene took place, which we looked at last Sunday. And if you missed that, you can pick that up online. And now, as verse 43 tells us, even while Jesus was speaking, Judas arrives. Mark says there, look there in verse 43, immediately while Jesus was still speaking, speaking the things of the account in Gethsemane, Judas arrives. And pay attention to Mark's wording there in verse 43. Judas, one of the twelve. One of the twelve. That was intentional by Mark. And it has as its purpose there to convey that Judas was indeed one of his own. One of his own who had now come to hand him over. When you read the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1 verse 16, we read this. Judas became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He became a guide. And so here is the head guide Judas hand delivering Jesus into custody. Jesus' ministry from its commitment brought about immediate condemnation. From the moment Jesus began to go out and do what he came to do, which he said was to preach and teach the gospel and that the kingdom of God is at hand, it brought about immediate condemnation. And it also brought about, such was the condemnation, that it brought about the immediate desire to take his life from him. You recall the very first time that Jesus preached in Nazareth, in his hometown? You remember what happened there? Well, Luke chapter 4, verse 29 tells us, it says, They got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff, in order to kill him. That was the very first time, from the very beginning. That was the members of the synagogue. They wanted, that's what they wanted to do to him. Well, now, via Judas, the guide, we see what the members of the Sanhedrin want to do to him. That's what is meant by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, you know, the Sanhedrin, the most elite group. They come, they come with a crowd, we're told there in verse 43, and the crowd had clubs and the crowd had swords. John 18 verse 3 tells us that this was a full Roman cohort and John 8 12 tells us that this also included a commander, a cohort such as this, was, according to Jewish historian at the time, Josephus, a cohort was a tenth of an army, so about 600 in number. And a commander, he traveled with a thousand in number. John also adds, and I tell you all this so as to pull together the picture in your mind, John tells us that they came with lanterns and torches. And so in the dark of night... In the olive press that we saw last Sunday, in, in the anguish in the garden, the moments after the garden, while Jesus is still speaking, that dark and quiet garden is now slowly lit up at the sound of 1,600 soldiers, approximately, descend, commencing towards the entrance to Gethsemane. These men are those who have 
taken counsel against the Lord's anointed, and here they are now descending upon him. He will be arrested. He'll be sentenced to death as a criminal, having never committed a crime, never committing a single sin. He will die for sin as a substitute for sinners. And that all occurs because of the inner mechanics and the woven tapestry of God's eternal decree, God's eternal plan, and the divine concurrence at work to bring this about. You remember we looked at divine concurrence in the verse two verses of Mark chapter 14. Here we have this playing out again. You have one agent in that is Judas. Jesus had announced his betrayal earlier, and now the 12 are going to witness it firsthand. You may recall from our study of the uh, announcement regarding Jesus, J- Judas back at the Passover that Judas's betrayal is a fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 109 verses 6 through 8 says this, Let an accuser, that's singular, let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Speaking of Judas, Psalm 69 verse 22 and onward says this, May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. And so note that by the psalmist here, these are imprecatory psalms concerning Judas. David is praying God's judgment upon this betrayer. So think about Judas with me for a moment. Again, Judas was a man of high regard. He was a man who preached the gospel Uh, He was entrusted with the role of responsibility among the 12. He was the role of steward. He wasn't the type of person who would just come to church once every four to five weeks and dwell on the fringes of church life. He was immersed in the Christian life. He was the only disciple who came from Jerusalem, meaning that he was highly educated. So when he taught the scripture, people certainly would have listened He was sent out like all the other 12 on that interim trip of testing where Jesus sent them out two by two. He would have done the great acts that each of the other disciples had done. And get this, he was chosen and selected and summoned by Jesus after Jesus praying all night. S. Lewis Johnson surmises well, I believe, when he says that Judas cherished a great place of rank In the kingdom. Now, remember that the view of Judaism still today and the the view of these disciples back then, for the most part, for a long time was that, and, and the view of the Jews at the time was that the Messiah would usher in utopia for Israel, that he would overthrow the Roman oppression that they're undergoing. And so Judas, he wanted to serve as like a lieutenant or a general in that military, in that kingdom. He wanted to have a high-ranking role. He wanted to have preeminence among the group. And S. Lewis Johnson remarks, quote, 
It appears evident that it was when Judas began to see or sense that our Lord was not going to be the kind of Messiah that he had expected him to be. It was at that point that he began to dip into the common treasury, steal the money, the treasury of the apostles and steal the money, putting it in his own pockets. Shortly after that, he makes the compact with the, that is agreement with the Jewish leaders to betray our Lord, end quote. So you can sum it all up like this. The desire to be the betrayer of the one crucified came about because of the uncrucified lust in Judas's heart for preeminence. And because of that, Judas betrayed Jesus and fled to the chief priests. He got his silver, which he loved to steal, and planned with them how to capture Christ. And we know that from verse 44, that he had given them a signal. Look at verse 44. Now, he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, whomever, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. Luke 22, verse 48 tells us those familiar words that Jesus said. Mark doesn't give us those. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Notice the stark contrast between the response of Jesus to Judas and the response of Jesus to Peter, for example, and the twelve. There is here no prayer for Judas that Satan wouldn't sift him like wheat. He already did. There's no pointing out here from Jesus to Judas the heart issue that's at hand and how to remedy it as he did with Peter. There's no command from Jesus to Judas like there always was with Peter and the disciples. Scottish theologian from the 1800s, Hugh Martin, he observed at this point, quote, Jesus has nothing more to say to Judas than this. And, Judas, and Jesus won't say another word to Judas until he speaks to him at the great white throne judgment. This son of perdition, as Jesus called him, is now sealed for the terrors of an eternal hell that await him and await all who reject and betray the Lord Jesus. Such an egregious disloyalty to the Son of God. Jesus had loved him. Jesus had served him. Jesus had shown compassion upon him you remember that when jesus identified that who it was that was going to betray him the disciples were surprised why were they surprised because it wasn't as though jesus was treating judas any different than others jesus had loved this man and there is a fearful lesson at this point 
There is a fearful lesson at this point. And again, I want to let the Scottish reformer Hugh Martin speak here. He said this, quote, If you put away Jesus Christ, the grace and the providence, in affliction and suffering, where he seeks to probe your evil heart and show you all its treachery to him and its love for the world and the sin which crucified him, if you set your face against his efforts to emancipate you from the carnal mind, cut you off from the carnal mind, which is an enmity against God, then these efforts by Christ, listen to this, will become more and more brief. Till, our, till at last our Savior, who once yearned to pluck you from the brand from the burning, shall treat you with such brevity and perfect coolness, how many, by resisting the Spirit of the Lord, bring themselves into this dreaded experience? The time when he expressed warm interest in their spiritual condition, till gradually his final expression of his mind toward them is now remit the matter to the eternal tribunal to come. End quote. Heavy stuff. With a token of affection such as a kiss, the Son of Man who came to save man is betrayed by one of his closest men. You need to take this account of Judas and take stock in your own life. Is there anything like what was in Judas in me? That's what you need to ask yourself. Am I given to wanton pleasure, sinful pleasure? Am I given to a love of money? Am I prone to harbor unconfessed sin? Am I desiring esteem and recognition? Am I failing to learn the lesson the Lord has for me in His compassion that He's trying to teach me? Am I resisting the convicting work of the Holy Spirit of God? We are told in Scripture that apostasy is real. We're seeing it take place with increasing frequency. We're told in Scripture to examine ourselves. We're warned by His loving heart in His loving word to do those things. Judas is guilty of treachery. His actions condemned him. You must ask yourself, I must ask myself in all seriousness, are there actions and attitudes in my life that are preparing me for such an end as Judas? The Lord spoke no more words to Judas. And with Judas now having signaled to the arresting officers, in verse 46 it says, they laid hands on him and seized him. Note back in verse 45, Judas calls Jesus what he would have always called him, even when he wasn't bent on betrayal early on, he calls him rabbi, which can be translated, my great one, 
my teacher, my great teacher. Betrayed with a kiss and flattering words. John 18.12 tells us that they tied up Jesus here at this point. They tied him up. And please note, not once did Jesus resist arrest. Not once did he lash out. Not once did he seek self-vindication. And even when he is taken away and his sorrows continue and his sufferings intensifies, he serves as an example for us all. Peter, no doubt shocked by all of this in hindsight, he ends up writing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, when they heaped abuse on him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. But what did he do? But entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Even as Jesus is tied away here and arrested, he serves as an example. By his own, betrayed. By his example, we should respond when we suffer too. So that's an egregious disloyalty. That's the first detail. The second detail I want you to see now is an eager disciple in verse 47. Look at verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. (laughs) We can speak before we think, can't we? You ever done that? (laughs) You ever spoken before you've thought? Well, here is one particular disciple acting before the answer. Acting before the answer. What do I mean? Luke tells us that there was a question that was asked by the disciples as Jesus was being taken away right here. Luke twenty-two forty-nine, The disciples say, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And before any more is said on that, Peter pulls out his sword before the answer, and tries to cut off the head of one of the men. Malchus was his name. He was the servant of the great high priest. And you can be sure that Peter wasn't simply trying to give the guy a haircut. He wasn't simply trying to do cosmetic surgery. He was trying to kill him. That's what a sword is used for. And you think of, if you think about it, Peter was probably trying to show Jesus that he wasn't going to deny him. That he was, in spite of Jesus telling him repeatedly that you are going to deny me, Peter. Here's proof that I'm not going to deny you. There's an eagerness, an impulsiveness here. Another thing to consider too, and we don't see this in Mark, but it did happen, was that Peter, like the other ten disciples that had just seen Jesus, They'd seen Jesus just say to these 1,600 men in this army, I am he, and then they all fell to the ground. That's what happened as well. So Peter had just seen that. He'd seen an assault of sorts, 
an offensive move by his Lord, and then maybe that acted. Peter was ready to go. But it was, as has been well said by Peter here, an eager disciple, a wrong deed in a wrong place. Now, much could be said about the fact that Jesus told his disciples to bring swords with them. You recall on their first trip, it says don't bring swords, and now he told them to bring swords. Much could be said about that. Jesus said here, according to Matthew 26, verse 52, all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. We could look at how Jesus here is endorsing a just war theory, meaning that not all war is wrong. We can certainly see here that Jesus is endorsing capital punishment. We could take time and look at all that, but we must move on. Peter lops off the man's ear. Jesus heals it, we read in Luke twenty-two fifty-one, And Jesus then tells them to stop and to put the swords away. This is the hour. This is the time. No fight from Jesus. He is laying down his life by his own initiative for his sheep, his people. Any resistance here by Jesus is resistance to the Father's will. In many ways... The prayers made in Gethsemane are being answered here. Jesus is committed to fulfilling the plan that he, the Father, and the Spirit made before the world was. The covenant of redemption. So evident is all that, that Jesus turns to Peter here and says, get this, in Matthew 26:54 how then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way Peter if we get the swords out and start throwing them around how then will this happen the eternal decree the plan of god the covenant of redemption is revealed to us in scripture it is in scripture that we see things such as divine concurrence playing out you see, even here, in this betrayal, God is the ultimate cause of all this. He planned it. He ordained it. What is written in Scripture reveals it. That's the ultimate cause. The next cause, which is called the proximate cause, is Judas. Some would want to say that he's the primary cause. He's the efficient cause. He did it. But you've got to remember, Judas didn't drive the nails through Jesus' hands and feet. What did Judas do? Judas handed him over. The next cause, the primary cause in all of this, is those Romans who will get him now and drive the nails through his body and spear through his side. And it is always important to remember that the ultimate cause being God is not the chargeable cause. Because God is the ultimate cause of what's playing out here and in other times, He's not the chargeable cause. Because when you survey Scripture, 
where you have multiple examples of divine concurrence playing out. And I want to give you by way of reminder what divine concurrence is. Divine concurrence is, is when you have two different agents, but for example, God being one and evil men being the other, you can have two different you can have two different agents with two different intentions seeking to bring about the same outcome. That's what divine concurrence is. In this case, Judas and God, both working to bring about the death of Jesus. Two different agents with two different intentions seeking to bring about the same outcome. We read in Acts chapter 4, verse 28, as it pertains to efforts against Jesus, that man, which includes Judas, did, get this, Acts 4.28, to do whatever your hand, God, and your purpose predestined to occur. So whenever you look at passages of divine concurrence, it is always the proximate, the next cause, and the efficient cause, the primary cause, those that drove the nails through, the hands, by way of example, it is the proximate cause and the primary cause that are always charged with guilt. The ultimate cause never is. Jesus, Judas made the choice to betray Jesus. He wasn't coerced in any way. And therefore, he bears the full weight of guilt. You remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 23, that it says that God, by the predetermined foreknowledge of God, he handed over Jesus and that you nailed him to a cross. That's the Jews. The Jews didn't really nail him to the cross. They handed him over to the Romans. You have the ultimate cause in things being God. Proximate cause is the Jews. And then those that actually did it were the Romans. It is the Jews and the Romans who are charged with the guilt of it. The ultimate cause isn't. The ultimate cause of all that's going on here is God, but the guilt falls on Judas. He's guilty. He made the choice to betray Jesus. The scripture reveals what is and what will be the decree of God. And this is playing out right here as Jesus is fulfilling the Father's will. Now we see here, Jesus talk a little bit about, a little bit more about this fulfillment, which is where we see now the third detail I want you to see in verses 48 to 49, an earnest declaration. Here Jesus touches on more about the fulfillment. Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures. This is an earnest declaration. It's not earnest in the sense that it's intense or elevated. It's earnest in the sense that it's very solemn and very sober. Have you come out to arrest me as you would a robber? Jesus here is pointing out that they are treating him like he is a vile, deadly, destitute, and very dangerous criminal. All while knowing that he's not. 
What did Jesus say? They hated me without a cause. Judas certainly knows that he's not any of those things. They came here, we know. It's late at night. They came in the dark of night. They didn't come in the light of day. Why? Because the people love this respected teacher. He taught them astonishingly. He taught them with authority daily in the temple. And so they come now under the cloak of darkness and come as though they were arresting Israel's most dangerous criminal. The Greek word there for robber is the word for bandit or highwayman or scoundrel or pirate, a rebel. Jesus was none of these things. And Jesus says to them here, you didn't arrest me in the temple, but you arrest me now. You didn't, Judas, you didn't betray me then, but you betray me now. Why? It's the fulfillment of prophetic literature and it is the outworking of the eternal decree. Listen as I read and write these down. Jesus says, this had to take place to fulfill the scriptures. Well, what scriptures? Here they are. Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 55 verse 12 and 14. For it is not an enemy who insults me that I could endure. It is not a foe who rises against me. For from him I could hide. But it is you. It is you, a man like myself, my companion and close friend. We shared sweet fellowship together. We walked with the crowd in the house of God. Remarkable. Isaiah 53 verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he is taken away. Zechariah 11 verse 12. If it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. This was happening to fulfill the scriptures. You see, no resistance from Jesus. Just an explanatory declaration and certainly no defensiveness from Jesus. Just submissiveness from Jesus. His prayers in Gethsemane are being answered. Your will be done. Psalm 40, verse 7 through 8. Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. The will of God is that Jesus' blood be shared as the perfect and final Passover lamb on the Passover. You see, they could have came with an entire Roman Empire. Every weapon of war they had, every man of war they had, they could have come with all that this night. And if it wasn't the hour for Jesus to go, Jesus wouldn't go. He went because he is not only the lamb, 
He went because he is also the priest who presents the lamb. And so number one, we saw an egregious disloyalty. We then saw, number two, an eager disciple. We just saw an earnest declaration. And now as we wrap it all up, I want you to see the fourth and final detail in this betrayal. It's an all-encompassing departure. Look at verse 50. And they all left him and fled. Here the betrayal scene ends as, as all flee. And yet here is another example of all meaning some. Because all here is not talking about all the Roman soldiers, etc. Here all means all the disciples. Here is Zechariah 13 verse 7 being fulfilled. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The disciples all fled, each and every one of them. Sure, Peter and John will come back later on and we give them credence for coming back and sure we must because they had some measure of bravery, but it didn't last long. But they all fled, all of them. They all fled in fear that they too would be tied up, they too would be seized. These men, you remember, who were insistently saying, I'll go to jail with you. I'll never deny you. I'll die with you. I will not deny you. They all fled. All of them. Back in verse 27 of Mark 14, Jesus said to them, you will all flee. No, 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 we won't. They did. And then Mark adds a strange little example. It's an example of fleeing. It's so strange that it's a young man running away naked. I remember when we were in the States, Pastor John MacArthur being asked who this young man is. To which he replied, I have the same Bible as you, how would I know? <laughs> we can't be certain who this young man is. Speculation is somewhat unhelpful. But I tend to believe that this is perhaps Mark referring to himself. It was in Mark's home, according to Acts chapter 12, verse 12, that the disciples and others would meet. And so the line of thought, and you can't be certain, but the line of thought is that Mark was at home and then he ran to Gethsemane when he heard about what was going on and he went in a linen cloth, a linen sheet, which was the pajamas of the day. And so he ran in his pajamas to see what was going on and he came toward the end and because there were 1,600 soldiers, they grabbed him, who knows, but they, there was a young man and they grabbed him and he pulled free of his pajamas and then escaped naked. But who knows? But what's the point of that little account there? Well, what is the point? Well, it serves really as a striking and somewhat remarkable illustration of following and fleeing. Following and fleeing. You see, if you follow him, 
you need, to, you need to be ready to be pursued for him. And what I mean by that is if you follow Jesus, there will be those who will pursue you. You see that throughout the persecuted world. If you follow him, you need to be ready to be pursued for him. And when you are, will you disassociate yourself or will you associate yourself as being an associate of his? I mean, here is the end game of this betrayal and this arrest scene we've just looked at. Here's the end result of it all. Everyone has fled out of fear. And yet Jesus walks forward out of love. Love for the Father and love for the believer. For it is out of that love to please the Father and it is out of that love for the guilty, wretched sinner that Jesus walks alone into the hands of godless men. These godless men will see soon, they will falsely accuse him. They will make up lies about him. They will unjustly sentence him. They will horrifically kill him. And here's the point that Mark is trying to display here. Jesus is all alone. All fled. A band of evildoers now encompass him. Prophetic literature. And it is here, out of his love for you, dear child of God, it is here, out of his love, that he does not resist. Nor demand. It is out of his love that he lays it all down. And he goes alone. Just as the champion stood alone in the wilderness. He now stands alone before godless men. All have abandoned him. All have turned aside. All have gone their own way. But out of his love, he lays it all down. And he just walks forward. Let that love that he's displaying for you right here and now, right as he is alone, facing the harrowing time in the court that we'll see soon, and the horrors as he presses on to the cross. Let the love that he is displaying for you, let that grasp you and grip you anew this morning. Second Corinthians 5 verse 14 to 15 says this, The love that Jesus Christ has for us compels us. 
When the full appropriation of the love that Jesus Christ has for us, it compels us. Not our love for Him, for that is just fleeting and and fluctuating and momentary and impulsive. But let His perfect love for us compel us onward. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Those that He died for died in Him. And he died for all, so that they who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. This precious Savior was betrayed by his own. And he pressed on out of his love. And Mark wants us to know that he was left alone. But his love compelled him. And may his love compel us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and think of this account and just ask, Lord, help us to to be moved by this great love that Jesus displayed for us even here at this moment. Betrayed, arrested, handed over. All alone. Help us to, to no longer live for ourselves in spite, in, in light of that. Help us to live for Him. Help us to walk forward now into another week that will be full of, of sadness, full of trial each and every day given to us by your good hand that you might make us more like this Jesus whom you love and whom you sent. Help us to take, as we looked at, help us to take the warning that we must always be sensitive to the work of the Spirit of God in our life, that we must always be confessing the sin in our life, that we must always be seeking to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. For we never want to be rendered like salt that's good for nothing, but to be trampled underfoot. Father, we want to live well for your glory. Fill our hearts with love for our Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.